This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Good afternoon, everyone. Very pleased to see that you are all still here at this point in the afternoon, ready to talk about one or two last dangerous ideas. I'm Anne Mossop from the Opera House. Welcome. I'd like to acknowledge that we meet on the traditional land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. We're here this afternoon to hear from Lloyd Newson about what, um, what the art, what, what, what don't we want to talk about in the arts. This conversation comes from the premise that we think of the arts as a place where we can push the boundaries of what we want to do, of what we know, of what we should think about and what we should say. And Lloyd is someone who in his work with DV8 has constantly questioned the norms and boundaries of the form of dance, of the form, you know, of, of who can be a dancer, of all of those issues. And in the course of a long and distinguished career, he's found that the limits to what the freedom of, of expression and, and challenging of received ideas, both in the attempts of people to silence him or his work, but also observing colleagues in the arts community not being prepared to, to challenge um, a received wisdom. So that's what we're going to be talking about with hearing from Lloyd about today. Lloyd studied psychology and social work at the University of Melbourne before becoming a dancer. He led DV8 Physical Theatre since 1986 and won more than 50 uh, international and, and UK awards for his work with that wonderful company. Some of his most interesting work for the purposes of our conversation this afternoon has been since 2007, where he started working very much in the verbatim theatre tradition, but bringing the use of, of verbatim interviewing and speaking into his dance works with works like To Be Straight With You, which explores issues around sexuality and religion. And can we talk about this, which is very much a brilliant and extraordinary discussion of Islam and free speech, particularly in the context of contemporary Britain. So please join me in welcoming Lloyd Newson to the stage. Should I just, should I just again? Yeah. Hello. Um, and I'd like to also thank the traditional owners of this land, past and present. Um, today's talk has three parts. Firstly, I'd like to discuss my experience of feeling censored when I made a work back in 2008 called To Be Straight With You, which then led me to make a work called Can We Talk About This in 2012. The second section of this talk I'd like to share with you is some of the content from Can We Talk About This? especially for those who haven't seen it, and discuss the idea that the work raised. And thirdly, and lastly, I would like to discuss the reaction of the work and ask you to consider what it is that we don't want to talk about in the arts. Can we talk about this is a verbatim dance theatre work about Islam, multiculturalism and free speech which my company, Deviate Physical Theatre, performed here at the Sydney Opera House back in 2012. Who here has actually seen the work? Okay. For those of you who haven't, I'd like to put this question to you. Do you feel morally superior to the Taliban? Hands up, who does? 
And that was how we began the show. It was a question <laughs> posed by writer Martin Amos. I want to put this question to you. Do you feel morally superior to the Taliban? Hands up, who does? Hands up, who feels morally superior to the Taliban? That's uh, quite a bad showing, that's hardly any of you. Well, I feel morally superior to the Taliban. The Taliban, do you not feel morally superior to people who, at a stroke, at the fall of Kabul in 1996, dismantled the health and the education system of their country by banning women from work? You know, that's a pretty good beginning to a regime. No more health, no more education. Not satisfied with getting women off the street, they consigned them to houses where they blacked up the windows so that not even sunlight got through to them, so that they, they couldn't be seen. The Taliban, who had many a two-day massacre of the Hazaras and other sects and other ethnicities within Afghanistan, who, in their massacres, take the trouble to slaughter all the animals. You don't feel morally superior to that? The trouble with us in the West is that we've become, we succumbed to a pious paralysis where we can't even say that we're superior to the Taliban. Why can't we? Why do so many of you censor yourself from saying, of course I feel morally superior? I support equal rights for women. I don't believe gays should be killed. I appreciate the invasions of Iraq in 2003 and partly Afghanistan in 2001 make answering this question a bit more difficult than had these wars not happened. So let's look at another scene in the work set prior to 2001, which shows Islamist intolerance has a long history which predates the questionable actions of the West and the Middle East. Protesters then marched through the West End of London calling for satanic verses to be withdrawn and for the British blasphemy laws to be changed. Carrying an effigy of Salman Rushdie, it was at Westminster, under the shadow of Parliament, that in front of the cameras they made their point. The effigy was set ablaze, and then the novel moved. Salman Rushdie's book, Satanic Verses, was shot four times in the back, and the Japanese translator, Hitoshi Igarashi, was stabbed to death. 1990, Turkey. Bahia Icha, an Islamic theology professor, suggests wearing the hijab is not obligatory for Muslim women. For this comment, she is killed by a possible bomb. 1991, Saudi Arabia. <coughs> Shia poet, Sadiq al was beheaded by state authorities for rejecting the Sufi faith. 1992, Egypt. Writer Farag Fodar satirizes fundamentalist Islam and is branded an apostate by Al-Azhar University, the world's leading Islamic institution. He is shot dead by Islamists. 1993, Algeria. A very bloody year for writers, journalists, academics and artists. Editor. Tahar Jokes. Sociologist. 
Mohammed Bukhuta, poet, Yusuf Sufti, stage director, Abdelkader Arula, playwright, Azdin Majoubi, psychiatrist, Mahfoud Busebsi, chief educationalist, Salah Shwaki, all murdered for their progressive views. <coughs> Turkey, 37 artists, dancers, and musicians of the liberal elite Muslim faith are burned alive in their hotel by a mob of 10,000 angry Muslim fundamentalists. This was because they invited the Turkish translator of the Satanic verses to attend their cultural festival. 1994, Bangladesh. Taslima is charged with blasphemy and put under house arrest for her critical views on Islam's treatment of women. 300,000 fundamentalists take to the streets demanding her death. 1995, Pakistan. 14 Muslim clerics issued death fatwas against author and British resident Mohammed Anwar Sheikh after he renounces Islam. 1996, Somalia. An Islamic courts militia arrests a group of musicians at a concert and accuses them of corrupting the morals of Somalis. 30 musicians are sentenced to 20 lashes each. 1998, Iran. Bruce Diwali. Hamid Kou. Hamid Kujitadeh. Sharif. Darish Mpavani Fulquan. Mohammed Jafar Qiyami and Mohammed Mukhtar. Writers. Journalists and academics. All murdered by fundamentalists because of their liberal writings. 1999, Turkey. Journalist Pakistan. is assassinated by a car bomb supporting secularism. Suggest the Prophet Muhammad. 2002 Iran. History professor. He's convicted of blasphemy and sentence. Convicted of apostasy. 2003 Saudi Arabia. Sentenced to 74 lashes, eight years imprisonment, and death by hanging for urging Iranians not to blindly follow religious leaders. Is accused of mocking religion. 2004 Iran. Musician and poet. Received 750 lashes over 15 weeks. Kidnapped and murdered after publishing artistic material considered offensive to Islam. I have listed violations of freedom of thought that have occurred in the Middle East. Given that we are one civilization of a great book, the Quran, this is completely absurd and I hope someday that it will come to an end. Inshallah. It's Muslims who suffer most at the hand of Islamists. In 1992, I went on a gay pride march, which that year went through the predominantly Afro-Caribbean neighborhood of Brixton in London. I and my then boyfriend, who was Indian, walked hand in hand down Brixton Road with other LGBTI marchers. I was amazed at the level of abusive comments directed at us from some members of the black community, surely as a minority themselves, whom I imagine must have experienced racism and racist abuse firsthand, why were they willing to be so hostile towards another minority? I tried to suggest, actually I yelled, don't you get it? Racism and homophobia are the same thing. Subsequent research we did within that community showed that many, not all, but a significant section of the British Afro-Caribbean community living in Brixton held strong religious beliefs and not surprisingly used this to justify their dislike of homosexuals. Fast forward 14 years, and in 2006, Channel 4 Television screened a documentary called Gay Muslims. The program interviewed 200 gay and lesbian Muslims living in Britain. Only one person out of those 200 was willing to have their face shown on TV because of fear of reprisals from within their own ethnic and religious communities. The following year, the word schism appeared almost daily in newspapers in reference to the potential split within the Anglican church over the issue of homosexuality. Examples like these raise the question, how does a society 
reconcile certain religious beliefs when they conflict with an individual's basic human rights? Should I respect a religion that doesn't respect me and in the worst case scenario calls for my death? Should human rights trump religious rights? Because of the sensitivity of the subject matter, it seemed most suitable, the most suitable and authentic approach would be to make a verbatim theatre work. That is, where all the words spoken on stage come directly from the interviewees. We ended up interviewing 85 people for the work to be straight with you. They held diverse and varying opinions, all lived in the UK, and all had had first-hand experience of the issues. I found a wonderful multiracial cast who were deeply committed to the project. One of our female performers, who had belonged to a Christian Pentecostal church all her life, decided to leave it and find another more tolerant, less judgmental church after a pastor repeatedly told her he was praying for her during rehearsals because she was associating with the devil, i.e. us. To demonstrate a point further on in this talk, I'm going to choose one of the 25 scenes from that production. In it, we interview a British DJ who plays the dancehall music of Buju Banton, Beanie Man, Sizzler, and so on. These artists have written songs calling for the killing of gay people. For example, Boom Bye Bye, Boom Bye Bye in a Batty Man's Head, still remember the movement, um, basically means goodbye, gay man, because we're going to shoot you in the head. Or, his skin must peel or burn him up bad like an old tire wheel. I don't think that needs translation. I checked this morning. All these songs are available for purchase at a store near you, including iTunes and Amazon. Can you imagine if equivalent songs calling for the killing of blacks, Jews or, or Muslims were released what backlash, justifiably, there would be towards these record companies. Reflecting back on the Gay Pride March I mentioned earlier, in order to make people more empathetic and understand the power of hate speech, I decided to swap the term black for gay in one of these songs. We had projected the lyrics onto a black hanging gauze, and towards the end of the song, a performer crosses out the word gay and replaced it with the word black. Buju Banton's lyrics now read, shoot a black man in the head. Admittedly, it's a harsh way to make a point, but remember, it's only that. It was only a theoretical point to make people think about hierarchies of hate. In 2008, when To Be Straight With You was still touring, I, along with Indonesian choreographer Boy Sakti, were invited to co-mentor a group of dancers and choreographers in Brisbane. It was part of a bigger event called the World Dance Alliance Global Summit. Anyway, the conference was looking at cross-cultural exchanges in dance. Consequently, many of the participants for our joint Lab came from different cultural backgrounds. Boy Sakti was an affable colleague. However, during one of our conversations in the studio, when we were talking about our work, he made it known that he thought homosexuality was a sickness and that homosexuals needed to change. In a light-hearted manner, I replied, in that case, did he realize he was working with someone who was sick? To ensure I had not misunderstood him, the following day I asked him to explain why he held those views and furthermore inquire what would happen if he found out that one of his own dancers were gay. He replied he would talk with the dancer and ask them to change, presumably to heterosexuality, referring sections from the Koran to support his views. 
At the end of the week, both Sakti and myself were invited to talk in front of delegates from the conference about our work. I explained the methodology behind To Be Straight With You, the role of the Batum text, and how this often gave voice to those who felt marginalised and silenced, as well as providing a PowerPoint presentation that included statistics and facts, both to, to support my perspective as well as the stories of my Christian, Muslim and Jewish interviewees. I also explained how we'd swap the words in the murder music scene that I referenced earlier. It was then that I addressed Sakti, based on what he'd said to me earlier that week, stressing my question was hypothetical by proceeding with the word if twice. If, if I had said that Islam was a sickness and that Muslims needed to change, how would he have felt? Boyd didn't answer the question, nor was he pressed to by the moderator. Instead, perhaps out of nervousness, she immediately opened up questions from the audience. From the brouhaha and comments that ensued, it seemed my theoretical question was more offensive to some, and I stress some, particularly white members in the audience, than what Sakti had actually said to me and meant. After some passionate exchange and necessary discussion, a woman stood up and said the talk had to come to an end because I was highly articulate, and as English was not Sakti's first language, he was therefore unable to defend himself adequately, despite Sakti having spoken English all week. What struck me as ironic was that there was a perverse sense of colonialism in operation here. Some white audience members had taken it upon themselves to speak for and on behalf of Sakti. So he remained silent and never answered the very question I had put to him. Should I have raised the issue publicly? Should I have kept quiet and censored myself, as no doubt many in the audience would have liked? If not now, when? One audience member sidled up to me at the end of the talk and said, thank goodness someone addressed the elephant in the room. It's important to remember, the whole conference was billed as conversations across cultural, culturals, culture, art forms and practices. And here we have a choreographer who admits in his practice that he'd be prepared to tell one of his gay Muslim dancers that they should convert to heterosexuality. In contrast, when we invited a gay Christian therapist to join us on stage in a post-show discussion of To Be Straight With You in Belfast, and for the avoidance of doubt, that means turning someone gay straight, some audience members actually booed him when he walked on stage. Six months later, Nicholas Rowe, a dance academic from New Zealand, wrote a highly emotive, inaccurate and lazy attack on me in an Australian dance magazine based on that event. Thankfully, another academic who, was, who had a very different perspective of that evening published a right-to-reply article, article called Getting It Straight. It began, quote, Despite Dr Rowe's attempts to frame his article in terms of scholarly engagement, many of his comments are unfounded, unsubstantiated and potentially damaging, unquote. There are so many flaws in Rowe's article, it's hard to know where to start, but for the sake of time, let's just take one. Rowe, in defence of Islam's tolerant attitude towards homosexuality, cites Indonesia, the world's most populous Muslim country, saying, quote, in Indonesia, homosexuality is not, in fact, illegal, but is both celebrated and contested within popular culture, unquote. Firstly, I had never said that Indonesia was illegal during my talk, as was evidenced by the map I projected that night, clearly showing the areas worldwide which do criminalise homosexuality. Secondly, just because a country does not criminalise 
homosexuality does not mean it condones it either. Here are just a few things that happened in 2008 when Roe wrote his article. The Pew Institute, a fact think tank, found only 5% of Indonesians thought homosexuality was acceptable compared to other regional non-Muslim countries like Japan. 54% thought it was acceptable there, or the Philippines, where it was 64%. Two, that same year, Indonesia voted against a UN resolution to stop violence, harassment and discrimination of LGBT people, along with 53 mainly Muslim-majority countries. Three, the head of Indonesia's leading gay organisation said that year, quote, we are all at this time suffering from stigmatisation, discrimination and persecution from religious groups and, and discriminative government regulations. And just in case you think things might have got, gotten better since then, last year, Indi Indonesia's UEMA Council, which comprises all of Indonesia's Muslim groups, issued a fatwa calling for same-sex acts to be punished by caning and, in some instances, death. At the beginning of this year, a number of prominent Muslim politicians added their voices to vilifying gay people, including the former communications minister who made a call on Twitter where he has more than one million followers, for the public to kill any gay people that they find. The Indonesian Psychiatric Society has classified homosexuality, bisexuality and transgenderism as mental disorders. Where is the word celebration that Roe uses in any of this? If Roe was trying to prove that there wasn't deeply embedded homophobia in Islam by citing Indonesia as a model country, he could not have got it more wrong. I took great care to present and research the facts and to be straight with you accurately. But the real point I'd like to make, however, is that Roe is not alone. His defensiveness, denial and misinformation are emblematic of so many liberals I've encountered. When stickers saying gay-free zone were plastered around the area where I live in London, quoting Quranic texts saying, fear Allah, Allah is severe in punishment, a left-wing friend of mine who is an academic lecturer at Queen Mary University said the stickers were a plot by the English Defence League to discredit Muslims. For those who, of you who are not aware, the EDL is a far-right movement which consists of a lot of unruly hooligans who claim they oppose the spread of Islamism and Sharia in the UK. Despite my protestations that my friend's theory was baloney, he was not having any of it. Two months later, Mohammed Hasneth was arrested for putting up the stickers. He wasn't a member of the EDL. He was Muslim. I also mentioned to my friend that one of my interviewees had been threatened when she tried to talk about the injustices of Sharia law on his campus. He dismissed this and said there was no problem on his campus. Last year, Queen Mary University was named and shamed publicly by the British Prime Minister as being one of the three worst universities in the UK for hosting extremist Islamic hate preachers. Why is there this head-in-the-sand mentality from supposedly smart people when it comes to discussing extremism in Islam? Is it lack of knowledge or something else? Perhaps the reaction is born out of colonial guilt and an understandable reaction to reject racism and Islamophobia. However, and I'm going to state the obvious here, 
Islam is not a race, it's a religion. And unlike race, gender, sexuality, religion is a set of ideas and therefore should be open to questioning and criticism, including through art. In that criticism, it's important to be able to distinguish Islamists from devout Muslims, liberal Muslims, ex-Muslims, and so on. Yet, I still find myself at dinner parties with people who show no hesitation in condemning Catholicism or Judaism, the issues to do with child sex abuse in the Catholic Church, if they, and anything else that they believe might be inimical to human rights. However, if I raise, the, raise similar issues in relationship to any aspect of Islam, they often go stum, change the subject entirely, doubt my motives for raising the topics, or deny the evidence completely, as happened with those academics. So whenever I feel censored, I feel the need to speak louder and decided to make another verbatim work, which, as you now know, was called appropriately, Can We Talk About This? An investigation into the interrelated themes of freedom of speech, censorship and Islam. The production followed a chronological timeline starting in 1985 with events that were led up to included the book burnings of Salman Rushdie's Satanic Verses and continues through to 2012 with the Organization of Islamic Conference, a block of 57 countries trying to censor, in fact, not trying, they did censor the UN Human Rights Council from discussing human rights abuses if Islam or Sharia law were mentioned. This is the UN Human Rights Council. Actually, archival footage we have in the show from the UN Council meeting, from a UN Council meeting to verify this is quite shocking. If you're interested in the issue, you can see our interview with Roy Brown, who works at the UN Human Rights Council, if you put his name and deviates into the internet. As an advocate of free speech myself, we asked all our interviewees, Muslim and non-Muslim, be their views moderate or extreme, whether they felt censored living in the West. Why shouldn't any Muslim be allowed to protest against the Muhammad cartoons, lobby for Sharia law, denounce homosexuality as a sin, or demonstrate during homecoming parades of soldiers returning from Iraq and Afghanistan without fear of arrest? Similarly, shouldn't people be allowed to criticise without fear aspects, aspects of Islam they find offensive as they would do with any other religion? Obviously, I draw the line on free speech when it comes, when it incites violence. My name's Mizanur Rahman, M-I-Z-A-N-U-R-R-A-H-M-A-N. Earlier, you said you arrested during the Danish cartoon protests. I was in prison for four years for the cartoon protests, for holding a placard. My indictment was ridiculous. So-called soliciting an unknown person to murder an unknown person or persons. So what kind of charge is this? The people arrested outside the Danish embassy in London, they weren't arrested for what was on the placards. They were arrested for the things they said. What did the placard you were holding say? I think it said something along the lines of behead those who insult Islam. And do you see that as a threat? It's a state. Just like you could say capital punishment for paedophiles. People have called for that in the UK and they've never been arrested. The fact is, when Muslims they speak, they are arrested. When other people say the same thing against Muslims, they will never be arrested. Muslims are under siege. There's a complete double standard and Muslims are afraid to say what they really think. Britain believes it's okay for the cartoonist to do whatever he likes. For Thea Van Gogh, summon Rashid to say whatever he likes. Not enough for me to say what I like. I have no problem 
with someone who says democracy is the answer. And I listen to them and I respect them. I'm not going to say you're a fanatic. But if I call for Islam, they say you're an extremist. That's not freedom of debate. But in the end, aren't you calling for freedom of speech? I'm calling for debate for me. I don't believe in freedom of speech. When you have freedom of speech, you're going to have violence. That's why the cartoon demonstration really exposes. Because the whole world was demonstrating. Not just me. From Indonesia to India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq. The West needs to realise they cannot just do whatever they like. What they say has consequences. What they do has consequences. And what are those consequences? If you want to insult the proper Muhammad, you can expect that the people are going to rise against you. People have a duty to stand up for Islam. And there's a line that cannot be crossed. And who makes those rules? God. God makes the laws. God decides what's the limit. Are you Muslim? Do you know about Islam? Since that interview, Mizanur Rahman is currently back in prison, having been found guilty of inviting support for ISIS, which is contrary to, this, to Section 12 of the Terrorism Act 2000. He will receive his sentence this coming Tuesday. A number of the women I interviewed for Can We Talk About This had spent much of their lives trying to stop Sharia, Sharia law operating within the UK. One of them is ex-Muslim Marin Namazi, who heads the organisation One Law For All. The thing with Sharia law, it's actually the Islamic movement telling people how they should live. And it has state power in many places, so it makes it a very different phenomenon than just people's personal beliefs. When people like the Archbishop of Canterbury support Sharia law, they squeeze our necks further, they limit the space we have to resist to speak out. I think that Islamophobia and the fact that it's been equated with racism is being used as a way of silencing criticism of the Islamic movement. To speak out suddenly becomes racism. In fact, it's racist not to speak out. I speak to people who consider themselves liberals, progressives, supporters of women's rights, gay rights, and so on and so forth, but not for Muslim women. You have to integrate people, not religions and beliefs. And I think that's the problem with multiculturalism. It's actually given precedence to culture and religion at the expense of people's rights. It makes me angry. Makes me angry. Okay, my name is Adnan Rashid. I work with the Hitting Institute, the institute that seeks to come out to represent Islam as it is, to bring people closer to Islam, in a sense that they appreciate it as one of the positive driving forces in the world rather than something negative. Islam brings people together. Islam promotes multiculturalism. Islam promotes peaceful coexistence, freedom of thought and speech as well, with limits of course. We wish to break misconceptions, such as Islam oppresses women. Many of the women who fled Sharia law have chosen to come to safety in a country which doesn't have Islamic laws. They've actually fled those laws. Now you're saying is their right and their choice to have it? I think it's a sort of PR campaign to make something that is so intolerable, you know, despicable, as something that should be acceptable, but it's not and should never be. There is so much in the niqab that's repressive against women. They are asked to cover their beauty. This doesn't mean oppression. They've chosen to cover themselves. They've made an intellectual decision. Who'd really choose to go to a court where their testimony is worth half of that of a man? No, the Quran, it doesn't say women are half of men. It doesn't say that. If you cannot find two men, have one man and two women. 
Men have unilateral right to divorce, women don't. It's much easier for a woman to get a divorce in Islam it's than a man. It's so brutal and so discriminatory and unjust and unfair. What we have in Sharia, we call it suitably harsh punishment. It's medieval, it's barbaric. How do you define something to be barbaric? I was interested in, uh, in asking whether well-intended multicultural policies that have allowed Sharia courts to operate in the UK had inadvertently end up, ended up betraying the very minorities and freedoms Britain ought to be protecting. The next clip was Sama Hassan, a devout Muslim who, like Mary Namazi, receives regular death threats for doing nothing more than advocating basic human rights over religious rights. Both these people are UK citizens and live in the UK. As a former Islamist, myself, I used to believe in turning every country, including Britain, into an Islamic state. I remember the Rushdie affair. Well, I was a teenager then, caught up in fundamentalist and extremist circles, and some of the people in our circles were thinking about plotting to kill Rushdie at the time. Recently, I heard from other people that I was being compared to Salman Rushdie, and that got me worried. I've grappled with issues around religion and science for many years. My name is Dr. Osama Hassan. I'm a senior lecturer at Middlesex University in engineering and information sciences specialise in artificial intelligence. I'm also an imam. I served at Leighton Mosque for over 25 years. In September 2008, I wrote an article for the Guardian newspaper in which I argued that Darwin's theory of evolution was compatible with the Quran. The whole issue escalated in December 2010 when a visiting Saudi scholar who had a lot of influence was asked whether or not someone who believes in evolution was fit to lead the prayers. And he said, no, categorically not. Darwinian evolution, it's against the Quran, it's a denial of the Quran. No imam should have such a view. To make clear that I wasn't denying the Quran, I gave a lecture in January 2011 at Leighton Mosque. There's constant heckling and interruption from the beginning, and I had to abandon the lecture. And one young man, who used to be a friend, came to the front and shouted, I was an infidel, I should be executed, and called upon religious scholars there to effectively put me on trial and execute me. Here's a leaflet they handed out in the mosque, which my lawyer said was a clear incitement to murder, entitled a fatwa about the son of Hassan. And he said it was obligatory to execute him because he was an apostate, and an apostate must be executed. Now, we know we have a problem with religious extremism in this country amongst young people, and that is why I had to take extra precautions. This led to extra police protection, extra security in my house, and I'll probably have to be careful for the rest of my life. The trustees of the mosque should have condemned the death threats against me. They knew about the leaflers handed out at the lecture, but it was complete silence. During my interviews 
I repeatedly came across stories where British Muslims felt they were censored and silenced from within their own communities. I interviewed a British imam. He was a thoughtful and sensitive man and wanted to support LGBTI rights. I can't tell you the whole story, as it would compromise his safety, but I can say he was reprimanded by his religious superiors for his views and forced to write a fatwa reiterating the that the penalty for homosexuality in Islam was either floggings and or death. He told me he was afraid for his family, friends and own safety if he didn't do what the community leaders requested. However, there are people from Muslim backgrounds who refuse to be censored, as you saw in the, one of the first clips, who refuse to toe the line and kowtow to Islamist intimidation and threats to their life. But at what point do you stop saying things publicly? Especially if you're not guaranteed 24-hour security like Ayan Hirsi Ali, an ex-Muslim, ex-Dutch MP and critic of fundamentalist Islam. And what good is 24-hour protection and security if you happen to live in a country like Pakistan or any of the other 13 Muslim-majority countries which have the death penalty for blasphemy? Salman Tazir, the governor of the Punjab, was killed by his own bodyguard just for suggesting it was time Pakistan repealed its blasphemy laws. There's more about this if you watch the Roy Brown excerpt I mentioned earlier. In the meantime, here is Ayan. My name is Ayan Hirsi Ali. I was born in Somalia and I was born into a Muslim family. And we lived in Saudi Arabia, Ethiopia and in Kenya. And I went in 1992 to the Netherlands, running away from a marriage my father had arranged for me in Canada. Theo van Gogh. He made the film Submission with me. I wrote the screenplay. The only two names on the credits are Ayan and Theo which is not only a security thing, it's also because it was a statement of Ayan and a statement of Theo. My name is Gijs van der Westerlaken and I'm a film producer. I produced Submission together with Theo van Gogh. As soon as the film was aired in 2004, and that was in August, the network that aired it, which was like the Dutch BBC, was flooded with emails and phone calls from very, very angry Muslims. This is an insult to the Quran, it's an insult to Islam. It was the word insult and the word offense. They are the most common words that were used without explaining what exactly it was that offended them. Ironically, it was taking passages from the Quran and the Quran is considered to be God's holy word and to be pristine and clean and should be elevated and worshiped. And I took that and put it on the skin of a woman. These women may be infidels, these women may be menstruating, the skin of a woman is considered to be impure and something that leads to sin. Where the film was confrontational was I took the verse, disobedient wives can be beaten, and then focused not only on a woman's body, but the woman was made up in such a way that she looked beaten and bruised, so that you could see the image, the outcome of that instruction. And also I asked in debate with Muslims at the time, what offends you more? The verse that says the woman should be beaten or the fact that I write that on a woman's body. Alessa's point about submission was that the voice of the main person in the film directs itself immediately at Muhammad. 
Which you're not supposed to do either. I wish I wish I had been a little stronger and that I had denied Theo that moment when he said, I've got to write my name on that film. If only I had been stronger and had stood up to him, he would have been alive. After Theo was killed, I went into hiding. I had to live with the security person. I was offered a witness protection program in 2004, and that I rejected because it legitimizes what the murderer wanted. Silence. He wanted me to shut up about Islam. One of the letters stabbed into the body of Theo van Gogh was addressed to you. What did it say? He had authored it in such a way he starts with, in the name of God, most gracious, most merciful, and then challenging me, I'm willing to die for my convictions, are you willing to die for yours, and then ends with the conclusion, which is, of course, you should be killed. I will now discuss the final section of this talk, which was the reaction to the work, and ask you to consider what it is that we don't want to talk about in the arts. One of our interviewees, Gita Sagal, who used to work, used to lead, in fact, the gender unit at Amnesty International, said, quote, if you say anything of importance, someone, somewhere will be offended, unquote. And while there were people who vehemently disliked, can we talk about this, I also received more letters than I had ever before from people of all backgrounds, including Muslims, saying how important the work was to them. The production got more five-star reviews than any other work I'd made. It won a Helpman Award here in Australia for Best Dance Work, was named Production of the Year by Tans Magazine in Germany, and won a Brighton Festival Award in the UK. When Can We Talk About This had its European premiere, Marseille Festival came to see it, as they had pencilled in the work to appear at their festival later that year. They subsequently wrote to us saying they had reservations about the work and that, quote, the subject being very sensitive, especially here in Marseille, where over 25% of the population is Muslim, we cannot afford any misunderstandings or misconceptions of the piece, unquote, and decided not to take it. Marseille's decision actually reinforced why I thought Can We Talk About This was one of the most important works I've made. It was, a, it was dance about something real, current and crucial. As such, I invited Jan Younghusband, a BBC commissioning editor, to come see the work at the National Theatre with a view to commissioning it as a film. Younghusband is someone I know well as she'd commissioned my last film, The Cost of Living, while previously working at Channel 4. That work won 17 international awards, including a Pre-Italia and Rose Door. Likewise, the two deviate films the BBC had commissioned previously, Strange Fish, that opens with a woman on a cross, and Andrew Achilles, won the many accolades, including an international Emmy and two further pre-Italias. So it's not like I don't have a good track record in making film. Initially, young husband seemed keen, saying she'd love to come and see the show. But after about eight or nine emails and texts between us trying to sort out tickets for her to see it, she stopped responding to any communication. Was it a coincidence that that week, that the week this happened, Mark Thompson, the BBC's then Director General, was interviewed and asked if the asymmetry in the way broadcasters treated Islam was due to threats of violence from Muslim extremists. Thompson replied, quote, well, clearly it's a very notable move in the game. I complain in the strongest possible terms. It's different from I complain in the strongest possible terms and I'm loading my AK-47 as I write, unquote. Thompson also referred to Christianity's broad shoulders, 
suggesting it was more robust in dealing with criticism and ridicule than Islam. With no further response from the BBC, I then decided to approach Channel 4, their commissioning editor, who saw the production and enthusiastically championed the idea of filming it, but was told by her bosses at Channel 4 that Tom Holland's film, Islam, the Untold Story, was about to go out and that it might be very provocative. Hence, they wanted to see how it would go, how it would be received before greenlighting our film. Holland's factual and historical film explores the origins of Islam, not unlike dozens of other documentaries that have looked at the roots of Christianity and Judaism. It received over a thousand complaints when it was broadcast, and Channel 4 decided to cancel an in-house showing of the film due to security risks. Although Ofcom did not uphold any of the complaints against Holland's film, Channel 4 decided not to go ahead with our project, and no further explanation was given to us. Let me be very clear, Channel 4 have commissioned documentaries critical of Islamic extremism, extremism like Undercover Mosque. In fact, I interviewed the film's producer, David Henshaw. On dispatches, an ideology of bigotry and intolerance spreading through Britain with its roots in Saudi Arabia. On women's rights. Gay rights. Living in a multicultural society. And holy war. The pinnacle, the crest, the summit of Islam is jihad. When our program, Undercover Mosque, was broadcast, a number of men said that they were appalled and they wanted the police to do something about the preachers. The West Midlands police have then approached us and asked for all our rushes. They then brought in the Crown Prosecution Service. Five months later, the West Midlands police announced that they were not prosecuting the alarms, but were accusing us of distorting and fabricating the material that we had filmed undercover and were handing all of their evidence to Ofcom, the broadcast regulator, with a view to us being disciplined. It was a quite deliberate ambush, and I couldn't understand how something could be so skewed 180 degrees. I am pleased to say that once Ofcom, the regulator, had gone through all our rushes, they totally cleared our program. They said it was an important and wholly justified piece of investigative journalism. We then sued the West Midlands Police and the Crown Prosecution Service. We won £100,000 damages because they had lied with us. Now the question is, what was their motivation to effectively censor what we do? I think it was partly to ingratiate themselves with community leaders in the West Midlands who were associated with these extremist preachers and partly out of a totally misguided political correctness. The West Midlands police accused us of damaging community cohesion. But I would argue what was far more damaging to community cohesion were the kind of comments we had secretly <coughs> demonising women, gays and Jews, a recipe for breaking up communities. If you were Channel 4, would you want the headache of taking the Crown Prosecution Service and the West Midlands Police to court, even if you ended up winning? When Channel 4 and the BBC decided not to film Can We Talk About This, many people, including progressive Muslims, who were eager to see the work broadcast, wrote in to complain. 
Mariam Namazi from One Law for All wrote to the station saying, quote, what about the threats on our lives for being apostates, ex-Muslims, atheists, free thinkers, secularist, 21st century human beings? You may accept censorship and cowardly silence in the face of Islamist threats and intimidation, but we cannot afford to do so, and we never will, unquote. When I started making Can We Talk About This, my board asked me to sign a contract indemnifying them against any claims of blasphemy, defamation and libel. This was the first time they had done that in 24 years. I refused as I'm not an expert in blasphemy law. <laughs> However, said I'd be happy to take advice from a lawyer who was and act on their recommendations. After a long standoff, the board finally agreed to this. But even before this show, when we made To Be Straight With You, we had lawyers go through our transcripts and documentary footage to ensure they were legal, factually correct and fair, which they found they were. So why the extra, extra caution on can we talk about this? It's worthwhile knowing before I consulted lawyers, I had already decided to refrain from showing any cartoons of Muhammad or projecting the film of submission which Ayan Hirsi Ali and Theo Van Gogh made together. Why? Not so much for legal reasons, but more because I'd seen the violence that ensued. When I make art, it's not just me. I have employees, performers, admin, technical crew, you, the audience, whose safety I have to consider. Ayan Hirsi Ali was not the first person, person on television to publicly criticize lines in the Quran that say you can beat your wife. So why did her film create such controversy when it was air, aired? I believe it's because she presented her criticism in an art form, and in doing so, she crossed a line for many Islamists. Did Salman Rushdie's novel, Satanic Verses, do the same thing? I can only speculate, perhaps, but perhaps turning a dance theatre documentary on Islam and free speech into a film also crosses the line for many TV commissioners as well. The reach and impact of television pro, uh, programmes goes well beyond the liberal, middle-class audiences that, come, that tend to come see us at the National Theatre in London or here at the Opera House. And it's not just the TV commissioners that might be worried by the fact, by this fact. It's my board, my performers, and now me that realise this. Since the end of Can We, Talk About the, Can We Talk About This Tour in 2012, there's been the Charlie Hebdo massacres in January 2015. The next month, there was an attempt on the cartoonist Lars Vilk's life in a cafe in Denmark. Later that year, there was also the Bataclan Concert Hall massacre. My last work, John, had nothing to do with religion, but when we performed it in Paris last December, the first meeting we had at the theatre's insistence and ours was a protracted security assessment. The theatre body scanned each audience member before coming into the venue. Can we talk about this was a work about free speech? But I wonder whether my performers would be willing to perform it today, just four years on in light of the recent events in Europe. In fact, I know some wouldn't. Yes, the numbers are nothing compared to Islamist attacks on Muslims in other parts of the world. And while I agree with Ayan Hirsi Ali when she says free speech is the single most effective weapon of exposing bad ideas, I find myself restricting my speech today. Unable to discuss things with you I would have spoken freely about four years ago, even two years ago, because of Islamist threats. Because to do so would put others in danger, Muslims and non-Muslims alike. 
I started making Can We Talk About This by listening to Muslim voices, so I'd like to end with a quote from Ed Hussein, who was the co-founder of the British counter-extremism counter organization, the Quillam Foundation. Quote, the freedom of religion that allows 30 million Muslims to thrive in the West today came about because religion was mocked in Europe after the Enlightenment period. No single religion could enforce its will as the truth. Without those liberties, we Muslims would not be practicing religious freedoms in the West, building mosques, creating cemeteries, prospering as faith communities. In other words, we cannot burn the very bridges that let us and other communities be free people here. We have been too easily offended. Our clerics and mosques have not updated their understanding of blasphemy or heresy. In short, we need thicker skins and must accept that just as we can be critical of other faiths and ideologies, others are free to do so about us. Thank you very much. We did start late. Yeah. So we have a few minutes for questions. There are microphones in the auditorium, uh, one here and one up here, so that if you have something that you would like to ask Lloyd, do please come to one of those microphones. Some of you are dashing off, no doubt, to get upstairs by 5.30. We understand that, but if you do have a question, we've got a couple of minutes for those. Um, meanwhile, I might... Uh, is, did you have a question up there? No. Okay, well, I will start off by asking Lloyd. I mean, this is a very interesting and difficult situation in the UK, I mean, around the world, and it seems to be getting worse um, in that um, the kinds of threats of violence and so on, you know, we've seen with recent attacks in Paris, they're more present and, and much more worrying for people. What do you see, how, where do you see this situation ending up? Well, I think it was the last point that I was making, really, that uh, it becomes progressively more difficult to discuss the issue. And that is sort of the point of dis today's discussion. Um, and that puts me in a very odd position, because if I tell you some of the things that, uh, the consequences, as I was uh, intimating there, it would put people's lives in danger. And I did not feel that four mm. years ago. So there has been, as many people have acknowledged, quite a chilling, it's more than a chilling wind that's gone through Europe and Britain. And it's not, I mean, it, I mean the, the interesting, there are many discussions about um, freedom of speech of various kinds. We're right in the middle of one here now about um, the removal or not of the words offend and insult from the provisions of the Racial Discrimination Act. Um, and that's, you know, ultimately that's a fairly, in the Australian context, it's a fairly academic discussion um, in some ways, but this is not a straightforward freedom of speech question at all, in the sense, on the one hand, it's pitting what we would like to have as freedom of speech against an adversary who are uh, not playing by the same rules at all. It's the kind of the bringing of threats of violence into that context I think that it's also, it so different. I think it's also important not to see them and us. 
Yes, very important. You're right. Really important. Yeah. Uh, because as I sort of said that, actually, I think the real question for me is how. Look, I'm a very lucky gay man. I have a partner. Yes, I might watch you when we're work, walking in certain areas of London, holding my partner's hand. But I'm fortunate. What I find quite deeply concerning is often, and I'm putting things in really big baskets here now, but is the white, what Majid Nawaz, who also mm. is the co-founder of Quillen, the Quillen Foundation, who's once an extremist, is still a devout Muslim, what he calls the regressive left, the white regressive left, and the amount of South Asian Muslim activists, brave activists, that have been in despair because of the white regressive liberals, regressive and liberals sort of go hand in hand, because of their failure to support progressive liberal Muslims. Often they align themselves actually with some of the most conservative reactionary people within the Muslim community. So for me, I despair more often with, with for example, some of those left-wing academics, some of the people that I have conversations with, which where do you begin? Where do you begin? Someone the other day tried to suggest, a doctor tried to suggest that male circumcision was the same as female circumcision that is often practiced across North Africa and the Middle East. Now, that's just to say that that is particularly a problem of Islam, although there are, it's not hard to find a lot of mullahs who will say that it is condoned because they refer to the hadith. But really, is this doctor really putting... I'm circumcised, the loss of a little bit of skin around my penis to what FGM is, the removal of the clitoris? As we discussed, I should have said, what if I lob your penis off completely? That might give you a closer <laughs> sense. What is the problem with empathy? And this is my big concern. I feel that it's what Marion Master says. I feel that there's a failure of the left to empathise with progressive Muslims. Oh, it's not about us which is why I do the flip, the word flip, where we did it at the conference, that mm. academic conference, whereas why I do the word flip on the projected um, lyrics from Buju Banton's song. In fact, what was really, really revealing, as I said, I had wonderful cast for those two shows. People from Muslim, two of the performers from Muslim backgrounds, one devout, people from black, African backgrounds, Jamaican backgrounds. They were really passionate, great people to work with. But one of my black performers, when I said, oh, we're going to change the word gay and put black, he went, you can't do that. <laughs> After three months of dancing away to this jiggy little song, it took him that moment to actually empathise and understand the severity of those lyrics. So we, it's, for me, it's often about empathy. And I get very uh, depressed often by some of my white left Friends, and I have to declare here, because sometimes when I talk, people think, oh, he's just a right-wing bastard. I have, never, I have never voted, I'm almost 60, ever for a right-wing party or a centre-right-wing party. So I am from the left, but I feel the left has really failed and I'm not the only one. There are so many great Muslims, progressive Muslims, who are in despair because of a lot of my friends. Let's go to microphone number one. Um, hopefully this makes sense. Um, you said that often when you bring it up, people will either just say racism straight away or try not to talk about it. 
Um, do you think the reason people go straight to saying that it is racism is because um, in Australian society, among some of the less educated people, there's a failure to recognise the difference between moderate Muslims and extremist Muslims? Yes, absolutely. I think the danger for a lot of, for a lot of people who are against racism and against Islamophobia, although we could have a whole debate about what actually the word Islamophobia means, but yes, they're very anxious because they don't want to feed into right-wing sentiment, and understandably. However, not to say anything is a problem. And also, as I said in my speech, you're confusing a religion with a race. You don't go when you criticise you know, the previous pope for calling homosexuality evil, oh, I'm uh, Italianophobic. <laughs> and barely does anyone say you're Catholicophobic. So we have, actually for me, it's about treating people equally and being able to have those debates. And I think sometimes people are so concerned about their own sense of you know, buried racism that they won't even have a conversation. And in the end, you actually create a racist view because you do not speak out. Where we are in a society where we have fantastic liberties. If we can't speak out in this society to support progressive Muslims here, what chance have you got for those atheists in 13 countries around the world that have, can be killed be, before, for being atheists? Those 13 countries, again, happen all to be Muslim majority. How do we support them? What about the gay Muslims in the only countries in the world at the moment that have the death penalty for homosexuality? And there's some terrible Christian countries in North Africa that are very close to making homosexuality punishable by death. But at the moment, the only 10, 11 countries are all Islamic majority countries. How do we support the gay Muslims in the UK? If we don't support that, those people, then we really are lost. Well, we've run out of time, so we're going to have to end on that very significantly. Uh, well, I think we have to take it as an inspiring note about, about to take Lloyd's word to heart about thinking about whose uh, freedoms and so on that we do support. Please join me in thanking Lloyd for his talk. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.